Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Elizabeth Baer about her excellent new book, The Genocidal Gaze from German Southwest Africa to the Third Reich. Elizabeth, hello, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, well, Elizabeth, we like to begin our interviews um, by asking a little bit about your background, um, where you went to school, how you became interested in, in your subject, uh, your dissertation advisor. Sure. Uh, so I uh, currently serve as a research professor in English and African Studies at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota. Um, though I'm now living uh, in the D.C. area. Um, I did my undergraduate education at Manhattanville College, which when I attended was a Catholic women's college and is now a co-ed and um, non-denominational. I did my master's degree at New York um, University in Greenwich Village and my Ph.D. work at Indiana University. Uh, Susan Gubar was my uh, director Um, Her name may be familiar to some listeners as um, the author of The Mad Woman in the Attic, a very famous book in feminist literary criticism. Uh, I grew up in the in the 1950s and 1960s and was very influenced by the civil rights movement, um, the gay rights movement, the women's movement. And so if there's one thread that runs through my scholarship, I would say it's a focus on social justice issues. Um, In uh, late 1990, I made a a trip to Germany with my family. My daughter was studying German um, uh, at the time in the country. And uh, we visited castles and beer halls, but we also went to Mauthausen and Dachau. And I came out of those camps asking how how could the Holocaust have happened? Um, how could this happen in in uh, the mid twentieth century? Um, there was very little Holocaust education when I was um, in elementary and high school in the nineteen fifties and sixties. I was raised as a Catholic, so I didn't. Um, uh, come to a study of the Holocaust through Judaism, which is um, the case for many scholars in the field. And um, in uh, the early 1990s, I had the opportunity to uh, do a three-week um, Holocaust studies program with the Jewish Labor Committee in Poland and Israel. And uh, after that, I began to teach the Holocaust at the college level and eventually um, to do scholarship on the topic um, in a in a very kind of serendipitous way. Uh, my daughter was um, a graduate student in German, and she translated some family letters for my mother in which she found a reference to Aunt Nanda, who has written a book about her experiences in Ravensbrück concentration camp, and she called me and told me about this, and I looked up the book. Um, in German, it was called Der Gesegnete Abgrund, 
which came out in 1946. So it was a very, very early camp memoir. And um, she was a Catholic who'd been arrested for her work in the Catholic resistance movement. And so my daughter translated the book and we published it together in English. It's called The Blessed Abyss. And um, and that was the beginning of my my research and publication on 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 the topic of the Holocaust. Um, And while I was working on uh, a book about the golem in Holocaust literature, I um, saw a reference to a genocide by the Germans um, that had occurred in Africa. And I knew nothing about this. Uh, I heard a paper at the German Studies Association conference that referenced this genocide, and I also uh, talked with someone at the Holocaust Museum while I was attending a seminar there, the museum in D.C., and um, and and just got intrigued that there seemed to be some parallels between this early genocide and and what the Nazis did during the Holocaust. So um, I made three research trips to Africa, and I also did some research in the colonial archives in Frankfurt. And um, initially, I thought the book would be um, maybe an article length, um, but then I gathered more and more material. And one of my colleagues at Gustavus said, "No, you're gonna you're gonna write another book. You have enough material." And so I began chapter by chapter. I presented my work at the African Studies Association conference annually uh, for five years, and um, and the book came out in 2017, late 2017. Um, so, so was the book yeah. originally going to be a series of articles, or just? Well, originally it was going to be one article. <laughs> originally it was going to be one article. <laughs> yeah. But then I uh, I just found more and more t- material that was related, and actually I ended up eliminating some chapters that I had originally thought I would I would include. Um, there are a lot of um, historians who have written uh, about this early genocide. Um, some German and uh, and some uh, in- English uh, writing uh, historians. Um, but no one had written a book about literary representations of this German genocide in 1904 in their colony in Africa. And since my training is in literature, not history, um, although there's a great deal of history involved in this book, obviously, um, <clears throat> that was the path that I decided to take for the book. Yeah, and I, I think... Um, now would be a good time to talk about some of the, the literary concepts in your book because um, you, you do draw on a number of them that uh, might be less familiar to, the, to our listeners, um, sort of sort of concepts like the gaze um, and then the imperial gaze and the genocidal gaze. Um, can, could you explain this, those to us um, and, and sort of why you chose to use them to frame your book? Okay. Um, so the concept of the gaze is a, a trope in uh, literary criticism, and um, the term was originally created by a scholar named Laura Mulvey um, to talk about the way that male members of an audience of cinema um, objectify women that they see on the screen. So the male gaze looks at the screen 
and um, and it objectifies the women who are uh, acting uh, in the film. The imperial gaze was a term um, created by E. Anne Kaplan, and it's part of post-colonial uh, theory. And essentially, the idea is that um, the imperial um, or colonial um, member of a society uh, looks down on the colonized. They assign the colonized an inferior status. So it's a gaze of um, disdain, you might say. Um, so I, I was familiar with both of these terms, and I was reading one morning when I was doing research on the book. Uh, I originally entitled the book Germans looking at Africans, Africans looking at Germans. So I had this this notion of looking in my mind, um, but I, I hadn't really come up with what was going to bring the book together, what was going to be the, the through line in the book. And I was reading a book on uh, the female um, uh, gaze, and I suddenly thought to myself, I'm writing a book, but it's not about the female gaze, it's about a genocidal gaze. So I went right to my computer and Googled genocidal gaze and saw that no one had used the term. And that was the, one of those aha moments that sometimes uh, happens when one is writing. Um, and, and so then that became the title of the book, The Genocidal Gaze. And it became the way that I organized um, all of these different literary texts that I was working on. So to define what I mean by that, Think about the imperial gaze, this gaze of um, assigning an inferior status to the colonized. When that gaze turns deadly, when the colonizer gazes upon the colonized as subhuman or as expendable, as inconvenient, then um, the, the imperial gaze morphs into the genocidal gaze. It becomes a justification for genocide, for the extermination of these inferior indigenous colonized uh, people. And that's exactly what happened um, in um, Germany's colony in Africa, a country we now call Namibia. It's located right above South Africa on the um, west coast of the continent. And um, so you could say that the genocidal gaze is a trope of perspective. Um, and so it's my term, an original intervention um, in the discourse of the gaze um, to explain links between this genocide in Namibia, then it was called German Southwest Africa, and, um, and the genocide of the Nazi Holocaust. And I was so pleased when um, the University of Namibia Press decided to bring out an African edition of the book because uh, it meant that people in Namibia could uh, learn more about uh, this devastating genocide. Um, just to give the audience some idea of numbers, um, the death toll in this genocide was 50% of one indigenous group of the Nama. So that was 10,000 people killed and 80% of another indigenous group, the Herero, um, and that was 70,000 people killed. So the best number we can come up with, and you know, we'll never have an accurate number, but is about 80,000 people who died in this genocide um, in, in various ways, in battles, 
in early um, versions of concentration camps in a death camp um, that the Germans created on an island called Shark Island. Um, starvation, um, rape, sexual violence was very prevalent. Um, forced labor, which eventually killed people, um, and um, medical experimentation. And a lot of these terms are going to sound familiar to an audience who knows something about the Nazi Holocaust. And so, yes, I, I am drawing links between the two. Um, another term I use frequently in the book is the continuity thesis. And simply stated, this means that there are significant connections between why and how the Germans killed um, so many um, indigenous people in their colony and how and why they killed six million Jews and five million other victims uh, in the Holocaust. Um, and I might describe the why as ideology. Key term in the book is racial hierarchy. And the Germans um, definitely uh, looked on themselves as superior. Um, the um, racial hierarchy they established privileged the Germans, and it dehumanized the Africans. They were seen as barbaric, as not having any kind of history or religious beliefs, having failed to utilize the land effectively. They were mostly cattle herders. And um, they were seen as bestial. Um, these terms, I'm sure, will be familiar to people who have read African literature and know about stereotypes um, held of Africans. And so the Germans came to believe that um, these people could be eliminated so that the Germans could possess the land. Um, and we tend to associate the term Lebensraum or living space with the Holocaust, but actually this is a term created by uh, a German man named Ratzel during during the era of colonization in 1897. The Germans had colonized Namibia starting in 1885, and they remained in control of the colony until um, the early years of World War One. Uh, so this is what I call the the genocidal gaze, this idea that um, they could eliminate indigenous people so that they could take control of the land. Uh, but there's also the how in the continuity thesis, ideology and methodology, uh, how they went about um, killing people. So the German general von Prata um, issued an annihilation order which essentially called for the elimination of um, the indigenous people. Unlike Hitler, uh, for whom we have no papers in which he actually said we are going to kill uh, all the Jews um, in Germany and the other countries we come to control, here was an actual physical paper, an annihilation order. Um, the Germans, as I mentioned, set up concentration camps. They set up a death camp. Um, and uh, because of their tactics of forced labor, whipping, sexual violence, um, they forbid interracial unions um, between Germans and indigenous people, which is a prelude to the Nuremberg Laws. Um, Eugen Fischer, whose name may be familiar to some members of the audience, actually went to the colony uh, where he initiated medical experiments. And the Germans sent 
skulls back to Germany to be measured as a way of proving the inferiority of the African people. Heinrich Goring was an early governor of the colony, and his son, Hermann Goring, becomes uh, Hitler's right-hand man during the Holocaust. So there's all kinds of connections to uh, to be found between these two historical uh, eras and these two genocides, which are only separated by 30 years. Um, to ask a quick follow-up, you, met, you mentioned the Annihilation Order, which you, you you do a, a wonderful job detailing in the book. Um, do you see that as sort of the, the the moment of transition between this imperial gaze to a more genocidal one? Is there, I guess what I'm asking is there for you, is there one moment um, or is it a sort of a, a, a slow buildup and then eventually they reach a tipping point and then they can't come back? Um, I think that the notion of racial hierarchy is something the Germans brought with them to Africa in the 1880s, and the annihilation order is not issued until October 1904. So uh, it may it may well um, be something that functions as a kind of culmination, but I don't think it was new. It was. Uh, it was the embodiment of, and of course, this is not not only true of the Germans. Uh, other people who colonized Africa in the era of colonization, the British, um, the French, the Portuguese, uh, also held these um, ideas of racial hierarchy. And for example, if we look at the um, trends of colonization in Rwanda, the Bel- the Germans first, and then the Belgians. Uh, a racial hierarchy was set up there between the Tutsis and the Hutu, and I think you can draw a direct line from that uh, racial hierarchy um, to the genocide that occurs in Rwanda in 1994. Yeah, no, I, I thank you for that. Um, I think the explanation of these terms would be helpful as uh, to keep in mind as we go along. Um, so let's move sort of to the beginning of the book. I, I want to ask you um, who Hendrik Witboy is. Um, why is he important to your story? Um, and, and sort of what is his background? What is his history with the Germans? Because it's um, he's very unique. I know he's on um, he's on the Namibian money, um, so he's uh, so he's obviously important. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll let you uh, I'll let you go. Sure. So Witboy um, was a Nama revolutionary. Nama being one of the dominant. Um, uh, indigenous groups in Namibia. And uh, he, um, to give you a little bit of uh, background biographical information on him, he was educated by missionaries. Uh, There were missionaries from um, Protestant and Catholic churches in Namibia before colonization. Uh, He learned um, the uh, Cape Dutch language from the missionaries, and he became a very devout Christian, and he uses his understanding of Christian principles um, to call the Germans to account for their failure to act like Christians, to act um, on their religious beliefs. Uh, He was the chief of his people, and uh, he struggled with the Germans from their arrival in 1884, and the colony becomes um, official in 85, 
And he struggled with the Germans until his death on the battlefield in 1905 at the age of 75 years old. So he is a heroic figure in my view and the view of many Namibian people. Uh, and he's very important to my story because he represents what I call the African gaze of resistance. So the Germans were gazing at the Africans with this genocidal gaze, but many Africans were resisting uh, being denigrated by uh, by the Germans in their gaze and um, believed wholeheartedly in uh, their um, right to be perceived as full human beings. They, they were not um, subhuman. So the most important thing that, that or one of the most important things that Heinrich Wittboy did um, as part of this gaze of resistance and to demonstrate to the Germans that he wasn't subhuman is that he kept an archive of personal papers and letters um, that he exchanged with other indigenous people, particularly the Herero, and also uh, the letters he exchanged with various German military officials and uh, leaders and so forth. And he kept this archive in a large red notebook. And for me, the very act of keeping this history, of writing and gathering history, um, puts the lie to the German claim that these African people were subhuman. Um, he's demonstrating that he understands um, what is the essence of uh, his uh, indigenous group, the Nama, and uh, why it's important to, uh, to keep records and, and to create history. Um, and so opening the book with the story of Heinrich Wittboy in chapter one was an intentional effort on my part um, to recover African voices and, and to honor them um, and to make it clear how uh, much they resisted uh, and how much they suffered uh, at the hands of the Germans. So the Germans wanted to impose these things called quote-unquote, protective treaties. They tried to get different indigenous groups to sign these treaties, which essentially um, meant that the indigenous people were agreeing not to fight with Germans, and the Germans in turn would protect them, quote-unquote, from other indigenous people, because various kinds of skirmishes over cattle and grazing areas and so forth occurred occasionally between uh, indigenous groups. And Vitboy understood that these protective treaties were a sham, um, that they were a way to divide the indigenous people. And um, I think it might be useful for me to share with you um, uh, some quotations from Vitboy to give the audience a sense of of his prose in this archive, which uh, which is available. Um, it's been translated into English. So uh, he used the archive basically for three purposes: to assert his identity as I mentioned, as a form of resistance and also to record military strategy. So in 1892, um, he takes up his notebook to write minutes of an important meeting that he had with the man who was the, the German governor at the time, um, a man named Bon Francois. And Francois was always trying to get this boy to sign one of these so-called protective treaties. And uh, this boy writes 
to von Francois very philosophically. He says, what is protection? What are we being protected against? From what danger or difficulty or suffering can one chief be protected by another? In other words, he as chief of the Nama be protected by the chief of the Germans. He goes on to say, this part of Africa is the realm of us red chiefs. If danger threatens one of us, which he feels he cannot meet on his own, he can call on his brothers among the red chiefs saying, come on, brothers, let us together oppose this danger, which threatens to invade our Africa, for we are one color and custom, and this Africa is ours. For the fact that we various red chiefs occupy our realms and home grounds is but a lesser division of the one Africa. So this passage has often been cited as an example of his early Pan-African sensibility, his sense of community with other indigenous groups in the region in Southwest Africa, um, and his recognition that that's where his strength lies, not with these so-called protective uh, treaties um, of, of the Germans. So as, as you mentioned, he is revered as a hero in Namibia now. When I was visiting Namibia last year, I was able to go to a um, a huge memorial, which includes uh, um, a grave uh, for Heinrich Fitboy. His archive was named um, a UNESCO Memory of the World Object in 2005. And one of the greatest thrills for me when I was in um, Windhoek, the capital of Namibia last year, was to actually see this red notebook, um, which had been seized by the Germans during a um, unprovoked attack they made on Vitboy's camp and brought to Germany, but eventually returned to Namibia, and it's in the, the archive there. The leather's no longer red, <laughs> but I actually saw Vitboy's writing and these letters and so forth, which was um, was quite electrifying for me. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to ask a little bit more about these protective treaties. Um, you, you, you do talk about them a, a great deal. Um, he, he resisted signing these treaties for a very long time. Um, is that correct? That is correct, yes. Despite this um, unprovoked attack by the Germans, um, after which they had destroyed, they'd killed many women and children and captured some of the women and children and uh, destroyed a lot of his his camp, um, his encampment with his people. And so they moved to a mountain range in Namibia, um, and he undertook a battle with the Germans um, uh, to try to maintain his independence and his um, integrity. And eventually, because of the superior firepower the Germans had, he uh, he had to surrender. And for the next 10 years, having finally been um, forced to sign one of these protective treaties, he actually had to um, serve as a kind of soldiers for the Germans. And he and his men were deployed by the Germans as scouts and as um people who were knowledgeable about the geographic territory. Namibia is, is a very desert-like country, and knowing where the water holes was key to survival. So this is the kind of guidance that he and his men provided for a decade. And 
after the Herero rose in rebellion against the Germans um, and then were um, vanquished at the Battle of Waterberg in 1904, um, Vitboy could no longer stomach um, w- being forced to work on the German side. And uh, he and his people rose against the Germans. They saw that um, the military strategy uh, that the Herero had used to have a kind of Western-style battle encounter um, was not successful. And so he conducted a guerrilla war, which lasted for three years. But as I mentioned, he was ultimately killed on the battlefield and uh, and his people um, were forced to surrender. Was there any pressure from other Africans, other African leaders, chiefs, uh, for him to sign one of these treaties? Was there was there any of that sort of that kind of counter pressure from from his own people to say, OK, enough is enough. Well, we should just give in. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there was pre- pressure in that way from within the Nama people when they lost the ba- the battle in the Nakhloft Mountains that I mentioned. Um, but actually, he, in the archive, there are letters that he wrote chiding other uh, chiefs um, for signing these protection treaties. He understood the danger of um, divide and conquer by the Germans. And he would write, for example, he wrote a letter to the leader of the Herero, who was one of the early people to sign such a treaty, um, saying, you know, this is really a bad idea. We should be fighting together. Um, So I don't think there was much pressure on him from other chiefs, but from within his own people, once he had lost the battle, uh, he had to surrender. Okay, so... um Let's switch gears a little bit to um, the you know the middle parts of the book. Um, and explain to us um, sort of well. First, let's talk about what colonial literature is, and then we'll talk about the specific pieces of colonial literature that um, you detail in this book. But uh, it might not be a genre of literature that everyone is familiar with. Sure. Um, so um, these are novels written either by um, European people on the ground in a colony, whether it be in South Africa or um, South America, wherever the colony happens to be located. Um, and, and they're also written by people back in, in the um, metropolitan um, uh, area, the fatherland in the case of Germany uh, or France or England. And in many ways, these novels typically valorize the uh, the colonizing forces, the imperialists. They demonstrate that the colonizers bring religion, they bring education, in some cases medical um, uh, treatments, um, quote-unquote civilization, as if the colonized people, the Africans, the Latin Americans, had no civilization of their own, no religious beliefs of their own, no history of their own prior to the arrival of the colonizers. So it's this kind of 
white liberal missionary zeal kind of um, notion that is often explored in these uh, colonizing uh, colonial uh, novels. You know, occasionally there's a colonial novel that will be uh, something of a critique. Um, one might think most famously of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, um, which is a controversial novel. Um, Chinwa Chebe, a, a famous um, African writer, uh, called it a very racist novel, but there are literary critics who have made the other claim that it's the novel which criticizes the colonial effort of the British in um, in Africa and uh, the colonial effort of the Belgians in the, in the so-called Belgian Congo. Um, but but I think more often these novels praise um, the the efforts of the imperialists. And they were quite popular in Germany, correct? Very popular. And so the, the book I write about um, as an exemplar of a colonial novel is uh, called, uh, in English, Pater Moore's Journey to Southwest Africa. And this is um, a, a novel written by um, a German Lutheran pastor whose name is Gustav Frentzen. And it was published in 1906. So just two years after uh, the beginning of this um, indigenous uh, resistance and revolution against the German colonizers in their in their colony, um, and uh, he um, had been writing fiction for a while as a Lutheran minister, but Pater Moore was his first big bestseller, and it was such a bestseller in Germany that it um, allowed him to resign from his work as a Lutheran pastor and take up writing full time. It's significant that uh, Gustav Frentzen never traveled to Africa, um, and he relied on conversations with soldiers who had returned from um, the colony, um, as well as uh, reading accounts in newspapers and uh, reading memoirs uh, for uh, creating this novel, which is essentially set up as if it is a memoir. It's written in the first person by this character, Peter Moore, or Peter Moore. Um, and he was a member of what the Germans called the Schutztruppe, or the protective forces. Uh, he was a German soldier who went out from Hamburg, which is where most of the ships departed from. And um, the early part of the novel, uh, he um, recounts all the stereotypes that he has of Africa and Africans. And there's a lot of exoticism in this, and there's also a lot of racial hierarchy in how he's thinking about his encounter with Africa. And uh, he arrives, and then he takes part in the Battle of Waterberg and in the genocide. Um, and uh, though those terms are not used in the novel, genocide being a term that wasn't created until after World War II, uh, it's very clear that uh, this is what uh, Peter Moore is, is involved in. And he does a lot of complaining about the climate and the Africans and the poor food that he has. Um, but the novel also has passages which clearly justify uh, the genocide. Um, the uh, image of Europeans that's projected in the novel um, uh, is that they are the rightful conquerors of the Dark Continent. So it's a profoundly racist novel, and um, Peter Moore and his office 
officers and the military chaplain uh, represent um, the genocidal gaze uh, in the novel. And again, I think just reading a, a brief quotation here would be helpful. So as um, the officer is trying to um, warm up the troops for the coming battle, um, he tells uh, them uh, these blacks have deserved death before God and man, not because they've murdered 200 farmers and have revolted against us, but because they have built no houses and dug no wells. God has let us conquer here because we are the nobler and more advanced people. That is not saying much in comparison with this black nation, but we must see to it that we become better and braver before all nations of the earth. To the nobler, nobler and more vigorous belongs the world. That is the justice of God. I mean, you can almost hear um, uh, phrases from uh, Nazi leaders in, in that quote that I just read, um, which was put into the mouth of an officer uh, in, in the Gustav Frensen novel. Um, and so it's clear that the novel blatantly approves of genocide. It became a standard text in German classrooms. Kids were assigned to read this book um, throughout the early 20th century in Germany. And it was avidly read by Hitler youth, who, who took a great deal of inspiration from it. So much so that Hitler ordered um, that pocket-sized editions of the book be published again and again in the 1940s, and these were distributed free to the Wehrmacht. And I actually have uh, one of these copies that was carried in in a soldier's rucksack, um, and uh, they're um, they were meant to be an inspiration to Hitler's soldiers for the glory of the German military. So I, I believe that it was crucial to critique this novel in my book and to make it plain how um, Peter Moore, the main character uh, himself, embodies the genocidal gaze. So in, in each chapter of the book, I try to um, to demonstrate how the literary text that I'm analyzing um, embodies the genocidal gaze, uh, embraces or critiques, and we're coming to some chapters now with critiques, uh, this this genocidal gaze, the notion of racial hierarchy. Um, before we move to the critiques, I just want to ask uh, one follow-up. I, I, I mean, I, obviously this novel is the most, one of the most famous, um, as you mentioned, widely used in classrooms, used, you know, admired by Hitler and so forth. Um, but was this, was most colonial literature, German colonial literature, sort of in this mold, um, same kind of sort of narrative arc um, as Peter Moore's, or is there something fundamentally different that makes this one stand out? I would say the majority of the German colonial novels uh, have this uh, racial hierarchy as a, a kind of assumption about the uh, relationship between um, the colonized and the colonizers. Um, Germany came late to colonization, but once they did, they had colonies in other places in Africa. For example, Cam well, the country we now call Cameroon, they had a colony in China, and they had colonies in various um, Pacific islands. 
So it wasn't just German Southwest Africa uh, as their colony, but several of these other colonies. And um, as I mentioned, they lost this colony, the one in uh, Southwest Africa, uh, early in World War One, when the British invaded the colony and took control. And then the Brits kept control of the country we now call Namibia uh, until 1990. Um, Namibia was one of the last countries in Africa to gain its independence, the independence movement beginning on the continent in the 1950s. Um, and actually, under um, South African apartheid, uh, and a system of apartheid was imposed in Namibia as well. And the traces of this are still very visible uh, in the country. Um, but, but I would say the majority of colonial novels are, are similar uh, to Frenson's. Yeah, I was, just, I was just curious as to what made this one stand out for the general German reader. Um, for Hitler, was it the writing? Was it the availability, affordability? Um, I, I think it may in part have been the fact that it really focused on the German military. And so it, it became a way of glorifying the fatherland. Um, some of the other colonial novels, for example, those written by women, deal more with issues of families, the settler colony, um, you know, men's and women's roles as um, farmers or shopkeepers or whatever in the colony. But this this book really deals with uh, with the military and glorifying Germany. And I'm, I'm guessing that that's what accounted for its popularity, particularly during the Third Reich. Right. Yeah. No, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you you mentioned in your in your previous answer about critiques. Um, and I think this is probably a good time to, to switch to that side. Um, and I'm talking mostly about UE, uh, UE tw twins, Tim's, Tim's, um, um, both the novel um, and the memoir, uh, the memoir being in my brother's shadow. Um, again, I guess similar to our discussion of the last book, do, is there a, a formula to critiques or is there, you know, how, how do they function and, and how are they written? Uh, so uh, Tim's two books, which I'm going to talk about briefly, are very different books. One is a novel and one is a memoir, but both of them are critiques of uh, German violence, of um, two different German genocides, the one we've been talking about in the Nazi Holocaust. Um, and so I, w I wouldn't say there's exactly a formula, but the similarities among these various books would be uh, would be in in the critique. Um, some members of uh, the listening audience may be familiar with the German term Vergangenheitsbewältigung. This is a um, a term that was created in the post World War II, post Holocaust era. Um, it puts together um, some German words to mean coming to terms with the past, and this is a process that uh, the German society has been involved with since. Uh, the end of World War II, essentially coming to terms with the Holocaust. Why did uh, Germany commit the Holocaust? There has not been a similar um, coming to terms with uh, this earlier genocide. In fact, um, something that some 
um, literary critics call colonial amnesia has surrounded uh, the, the German genocide in Africa. Um, and this is one reason why I believe that it's so important to talk about this earlier genocide and to um, and to talk about the literary text, and we'll come to William Kentridge's art installation. Um, but how has artists come to terms with these genocides? Um, and Germany is only just beginning to do this as far as the earlier genocide is concerned. There's been this Vergangenheitsbewältigung for the um, Second World War and for um, the, the genocide of 11 million people in the Holocaust, but uh, but not for the earlier genocide. And so I think um, the part of my book that talk about uh, talks about the the critiques is uh, is is really essential. Yeah. Uh, and so can you you give us a flavor of what of what the critiques are? I mean, they may seem obvious, um, but um, you know. And, and then explain explain also a little bit of background of of Tim as well. So Franzen's novel comes out in 1906, the one we were just talking about, about Peter Moore. And as I said, it embodied um, the German genocidal gaze. Uh, Germany lost its colonies, as I've mentioned, with the Treaty of Versailles, all of the colonies in China and the South Pacific and so forth. And then the colonial archives, all the um, exchange between the government uh, in the fatherland and the um, governors in these various colonies uh, was sealed. Um, no one could get access to these archives. And they remained sealed uh, through the Nazi era in the Third Reich. And then many of the records um, were captured by the Soviets at the end of World War II and taken back uh, to the USSR. And so aside from these self-congratulatory memoirs um, that were published um, in the early 20th century after Germany lost its colonies, these, these memoirs by German military people who'd been in the various colonies, um, the colonial era was, was somewhat forgotten, colonial amnesia. There was no acknowledgement that a genocide had been uh, committed there. In the 1960s, the archives were returned from um, Russia uh, to the communist part of Germany. You know, Germany was divided after World War II, and the German Democratic Republic um, adopted, was controlled by Russia and adopted the, um, the, the communist ideology. And so a young historian um, by the name of Horst Drexler was just getting ready to write his dissertation when these archives arrived back uh, in, um, I think they were put in Potsdam in, in Berlin. And uh, he was one of the first people to open up these records. It must have been a very exciting moment. And to really begin to get some of the dirty little secrets of the colonial era of Germany and um, and and very clear writing about what uh what the what happened in the genocide and uh he had uh grown up in the german democratic republic um educated in uh communist ideology and unlike the people in in west germany who felt a need to hide this earlier past or to glorify it uh he felt uh, no such need um 
he had been trained um, to uh, to think about Lenin's um, quotation that imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. And so he felt very free to write a, a history, um, which he did as a dissertation that was subsequently published called Let Us Die Fighting in English, the English translation. And uh, it, it came out in 1966. And it was literally the first book to really criticize what Germany had done in um, German Southwest Africa. So 12 years later, um, in 1978, a young German writer named Uwe Tim, T-I-M-M, uh, published a novel um, called Marenga. Two things about this novel. First of all, Marenga was another indigenous hero like Heinrich Wittboy. Uh, who had fought against the Germans um, during the guerrilla warfare uh, period. And it's very clear that Uwe Kim had read Horst Drexler's book because there are passages in the novel that come right out of descriptions in, um, in Let Us Die Fighting of the, uh, of the conflict. So um, Kim, to give you a little bit of background about him, was uh, the son of a German soldier during World War II. His father was conscripted into um, the Wehrmacht. And he was the brother, uh, his much older brother, of um, a man who had enlisted in, um, in the army and become a member of the infamous German SS. And uh, he... Um, is too young to fight during World War II. Um, and when his father comes home from the war, his brother, by the way, did not survive. He died of wounds at his, at the front. Uh, and his father comes home and uh, doesn't talk much, which was very common about World War II. It had ended badly for the Germans in many ways. And, um, and so Tim is looking back at the... German genocide in 1904 through the lens of World War II and the Holocaust, what happened uh, in the second German genocide. And so you might say that when Tim sat down to write his novel, Marenga, uh, which is also very much a military novel, a novel about um, soldiers in um, the country we now call Namibia, uh, he was, uh, to use a literary term, writing back to Gustav Frensen. He saw his book, Marenga, as a critique and a corrective of um, the novel Peter Moore by Gustav Frensen. Um, and I think that the dramatic approach that he takes in the book um, is because he's looking through this kind of double lens of, um, of the genocidal gaze of, of um, German genocides. So um, unlike Peter Moore, Gustav Frensen's soldier, who embraces racial hierarchies and the genocidal gaze, um, Tim gives us a soldier who's engaged in the same historical struggle, but has a very different reaction. He gradually becomes disillusioned and then appalled by the behavior and the attitudes of his fellow Schutztruppler, his fellow fellow uh, German soldiers, and 
Kim uses this disillusionment and um, and ultimately sort of terror uh, on the part of this soldier um, to critique both that genocide and um, and and by implication uh, the Holocaust. Twenty five years later. After his father has died, he didn't want to write this memoir while his father was still alive. Uh, he writes the book In My Brother's Shadow, which was a bestseller in Germany. And Uwe Tim, I should say, um, has written some humorous books. He's got one called The Invention of Curry Sausage. Um, he's written books about um, capitalism in Germany. Um, so he and he's written some children's books. He's still very much alive, and and he's a, a well-regarded writer. Uh, in Germany. In My Brother's Shadow, this memoir is a much more direct um, and devastating expose of German nationalism, um, of militarism, of genocidal violence, because he sees that having happened in both cases. And he recounts in the memoir some of the, uh, just the ways in which he as a child was the subject of this kind of random German violence that he's critiquing. And so he he really interrogates German values and he asks very difficult questions about the Holocaust. And um, the memoir is part of uh, a category of post-World War II uh, writing, which is called Vater Literatur. Um, That is to say in English, father literature. So these were books written by the next generation, the the children of the Nazis, the children of the men who fought in in the war, whether they agreed with Hitler or not. They were often um, drafted and forced to fight. Um, And and this Vater literature can be summed up as books which resulted from um, these young children, when they reach teenage years, asking the question, "What did you do in the war, Daddy? What you know? Were you um, a guard at a camp? Were you a member of the Nazi Party? Uh, were you one of the uh, Germans who um, ratted out gay men and women who uh, identified Jews living in their apartment building? What did you do in the war? Did you run the trains?" Uh, to the camps, um, were you part of the Einsatzgruppen? And this resulted in a whole genre of literature, which is a genre of critique, which is, um, you know, both of these books that I've mentioned by Tim are part of, of, of this genre. Um, you mentioned earlier um, about how artists um, deal with these issues, and you, and you mentioned the black box. Um, I think now is a time we'll, we'll, we'll shift gears a little bit and talk about the black box. Um, I'll just give a, big, a brief description of what it is, um, why it's important, because I, I'll be honest, this is something before reading your book I had I'd never heard of, and I, I thought it was fascinating. Well, as I mentioned, I was thinking about this topic for a few years before and while I was writing another book on the golem. So I had some time to just collect material. And I go to Germany quite frequently as part of my research and happened to go to an exhibit at the Martin Gropius Bau in 2012. Um, It was an exhibit about the connection between art and journalism and happened upon this art installation in one of the galleries uh, by an artist who was new to me, uh, William Kentridge. And um, 
what this looked like when I encountered it in the gallery was a miniature theater, maybe about the size of a card table. And um, it is, it's animated and it's deep. So there are various layers to uh, what is shown on the stage. It moves. It almost functions as a kind of palimpsest, uncovering more and more material um, as it goes. And um, the display incorporates what you see in these various layers um, is uh, early 20th century German colonial film clips most notably one of a German man killing a rhinoceros, cutting off his leg as a trophy. Um, mechanized figures, little sort of puppets on springs and sticks. There's music going on in the background. Um, photographs pop up, photographs of the colonial era in Namibia. Maps pop up and um, collages of old newspaper clippings. The whole performance takes 22 minutes, and it can be found on the Internet. Um, if people would Google Black Box or Chambre Noir, it goes by both names, and uh, William Kentridge is the, the name of the artist. Um, and you can see a couple of different YouTube videos that have been made probably surreptitiously in the, in the, in the uh, museum but you can piece it together and see the whole thing. Uh, and it gradually dawned on me as I'm watching this, that the subject matter was the German genocide of the Herero in Nama in, in 1904. Um, and so I just sat there mesmerized watching the 22 minute performance over and over again. And what Kentridge is doing in this uh, black box performance is uh, gesturing in several directions. He's interrogating German guilt for the genocide. He's pointing out the silence about this genocide, the fact that it's been largely hidden. And as I was writing this book, people would say, well, what are you writing about? And I told them, and invariably, they would say, I never heard about this genocide in 1904. Everyone's heard of the Holocaust, um, but not this genocide. And um, the performance also references Freud's notion of power arbeit, working through grief, the importance of that process of working through uh, grief, and that that has not been allowed in the case of this genocide because of colonial amnesia. Um, Kentridge is also drawing links between this earlier genocide, the Holocaust, and apartheid, a system um, that was very much in place when he was a young boy in um, in South Africa. He, Kentridge is Jewish. He grew up in South Africa under the apartheid reg regime. He's white, so it didn't affect him directly, uh, only the um, people of color and the um, black South Africans. But um, both of his parents were anti-apartheid attorneys, so he was um, intimately aware of the injustice of the apartheid system uh, as he was growing up. He actually traveled to Namibia to research um, the genocide of the Herero and Nama, and he, um, he went into antique shops where he found Nazi memorabilia because 
the Germans have remained very much a presence in Namibia up to um, today. And Hitler hoped to recapture the African colonies and the other colonies that Germany had had in what he envisioned as the, the thousand year Reich. Uh, and, um, Kentridge also went to the site of the Battle of Waterfield, which is in, uh, Waterburg, sorry, the Battle of Waterburg in the northern part of the country. And, uh, and so he used all of that, um, experience plus his own personal experience and his knowledge of the Holocaust um, because many um, the, the Jewish population in South Africa is largely um, from Lithuania and they migrated to South Africa um, to avoid uh, the Holocaust they they migrated there um, in the in the 30s and 40s so um, the performance occurs as the figures move around this small stage, uh, bringing up various kinds of images. And um, the term black box, the title of this this installation, invokes the idea of early cameras, which were sometimes called black boxes, but also the idea of the black box as a recording device in airplanes that, you know, is what the rescuers always look for after a plane crash because it will have the final recordings of um, before the disaster. And it's a very much functions as a photographic darkroom, um, as a kind of theater and uh, as an instrument of surveillance. Um, so yet again, we come upon um, a piece of art that embodies and critiques the genocidal gaze. Uh, the genocidal gaze in these three instances, um, the early genocide, the Holocaust, and apartheid. And um, one thing that uh, is perhaps not um, known by members of the listening audience is that many of the um, people who created apart the apartheid system in South Africa went to Germany to study during the Third Reich. Apartheid comes into being in 1948, just three years after World War II ends, and uh, many of its features echo aspects of uh, the Third Reich. So here we have the genocidal gaze again, this idea that certain people are expendable. They are subhuman. Um, This would include the indigenous people that I've been talking about, the um, six million Jews, um, and the huge number of massacres of um, indigenous people that occurred under the apartheid um, administration. Yeah, I I found this chapter so fascinating because the idea that the three events, there could be a line drawn between the three things, um, not only helps to really demonstrate your point when you read the whole book from beginning to end, but um, also demonstrates that, you know, this is a this is a, a widespread problem, not something just confined to Germans, um, but it, it, it takes place in other places in Africa, and, and not just in Africa, but other places that have experienced um, colonization. Um, so yeah, I think, and, and, I, and I, I have looked up the videos of the performance, and, and I would encourage listeners to actually go and, and, and piece the videos together and see for yourself, because it, it is a fascinating um, exhibit. And like I said, when I asked the question, I had, I had never heard of this before I had read your book. 
Um, so um, let's let's yeah, turn to the. Uh, uh, oh no, go ahead. Let me just finish finish by saying um, it, it 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 does link events in the 20th century that were quote unquote justified by racial hierarchy, and and I think it serves in a really compelling way as a memorial for the people who have been murdered and also as a kind of warning to museum goers that they have a responsibility to remember and to speak out and to resist oppression yeah i I, yeah i think this is a this is a this is a very critical uh, chapter in your book and, and and does um leave people with a lot you know, to think about as they go to the museums and they go to, you know, they visit Berlin and they visit some of the historical sites, the commemoration sites that they're not, you know, they're they're for to generate your your thinking, um, not just to go look at. Um, right. Yeah. Yesterday's uh, New York Times ran a um, a fascinating full page article. This would be the July fourteenth, um, two thousand nineteen issue of the Sunday New York Times, um, which. Uh, talked about the use, increasing use of surveillance and facial recognition in, um, in our society and in, in other countries. It's very prominent in China right now, for example. And, um, how this traces back to these, um, early eugenicists who believed that by looking at a criminal's face, you could tell that they had a criminal uh, background or a criminal, um, temperament or personality. And these early um, efforts by eugenicists were based on racial hierarchy, and now we have the same thing going on in our society in a really, really scary way. So, yeah, I think it's very, very pertinent. Um, so let's let's move to the last chapter of your book um, that deals with African novelists and, and how they perceive Germany. Um, I'm wondering if you can explain... Um, how they do perceive it um, in, in sort of our contemporary uh, in a, our contemporary time, and uh, what are some of the things you look at? So the the last chapter focuses on a Ghanaian novelist whose name is Ama Ata Aidu, and uh, her novel that I'm working on uh, here is called Our Sister Killjoy. And this novel was published in 1977. So I open the book with an African voice and I close uh, the book. The last two chapters are, are African voices. And the subtitle of Ama Ata Edu's um, uh, book is Reflections from a Black-Eyed Squint. So here we have uh, the, the actual phrase referring to the African gaze, the black-eyed squint the gaze of Africans upon Western imperialists. And this is Ama Ata Edu's best well, uh, best known novel. And um, basically it recounts the study abroad journey of her young female character, whose name is Sissy. And Sissy's given a scholarship to leave Africa and travel to Frankfurt, Germany uh, as a study abroad student. And there she encounters racism for the first time. Um, she's in uh, the railroad station and somebody uh, yells out in German, oh, look, um, there's a black person. And because she comes from Africa, she's never really had anyone point her out as a black person. This is what her whole country looks like. Um, she's Ghanaian, as, as is I do, the author. And... Um, 
she um, uh, reacts to this um, by realizing that um, this German person is pointing out difference and in some uh, senses is pointing out um, uh, that she's less uh, less human or less valuable um, than the person who's sort of mocking her. Um, she uh, encounters also, in addition to this racism, um, she encounters traces of the Holocaust. Uh, part of her task as a study abroad student is to plant trees in a forest. And this is a forest where um, murders had happened um, during the Holocaust, and she comes upon uh, evidence of this. And what I uh, focus on in the chapter is in the same way that Uwe Tim was writing back to Gustav Frentzen, I think Ama Ata Edu here is writing back to uh, Joseph Conrad. She's writing back to The Heart of Darkness. That's a novel in which someone comes from England uh, to the Belgian Congo. In this case, someone is leaving Ghana um, and going to Germany. So the journey is reversed. And uh, essentially, I think what she is inviting the reader to do is to perceive Germany as the heart of darkness in the 20th century, rather than Africa, which has always been referred to by imperialists as the dark continent. So the novel contains um, many references to Hitler, to the so-called, quote, House of Aryan, to um, the Holocaust, to eugenics, uh, to other genocides. So it's, it's made very clear um, what she's doing here. She also uses intertext. This is a process called intertextuality in literary uh, theory, drawing connections between books, showing how one writer has used or is critiquing an earlier book. Um, she uses intertexts from fairy tales, and we always associate fairy tales with Germany and the Grimm brothers. She uses intertexts from um, Charlotte Bronte's novel, uh, Jane Eyre. Um, and, uh, and so I think what, what she's inviting the reader to do is to see uh, once again, that this is an, a critique of the genocidal gaze, that it's an example of the African gaze, which is resisting um, the racial hierarchy implicit in the German gaze on indigenous people. Yeah. Um, as a way to wrap up discussion of your book, um, I wonder if you could tell the listeners um, just one or two main things you would like um, people to take away from your book, both by, you know, after they actually read the book and, and sort of listening to you talk today. Yeah, give us that. Uh, okay, so I think the, the first thing that I very much wanted our readers to take away from the genocidal gaze is the danger of racial hierarchies, because these still exist in our world. And as I try to make evident in the in the um, in the book, um, they can lead to genocide. They can lead to dangerous exploitation of people who have been deemed at the bottom of the racial hierarchy, which is where the Germans, for example, placed the Jews um, during uh, during the Holocaust. And by racial hierarchy, I mean setting a group apart as an enemy, uh, as subhuman 
for example, during the Rwandan genocide, the Hutu called the Tutsis cockroaches. The Nazis called the Jews vermin. Um, and um, looking at a particular group of people as lacking in civilization, uh, as, as bestial, as barbarians. And I think this can lead very quickly to um, agreement that a group can be exterminated, can be eliminated in order to gain uh, land or um, or for other purposes, because their life unworthy of life, a phrase from Nazi ideology. So again, we can draw a line from the Herero and Nama to the Nazis to the Rwandan um, genocide, these connections between imperialism and uh, genocide. So um, America is an imperial power in the world. Um, have we engaged in the genocide? We don't often talk about the genocide of Native Americans that allowed us to take control of our country. We don't um, often think about uh, slavery as uh, one of the uh, forces that enabled us to become a, a powerful, um, economically viable nation. Um, so these are twin um acts of oppression at the basis of American history. And so I hope that um, the danger of racial hierarchies is one takeaway from the book. Um, and similarly, the danger of colonial amnesia. Germany denied and repressed this genocide from 1904 uh, for over a 100 years. Um, only in 2017, did Germany finally mount an exhibit at their historical museum uh, in Berlin, which formally acknowledged the genocide? It was a very powerful exhibit that I had the opportunity to see, which had a lot of artifacts from um, the colonial era, including this annihilation order that I mentioned. It was actually there in in the exhibit. The German parliament, the um, the, the main legislative uh, body in Germany has yet to uh, to acknowledge that this was a genocide. They have yet to apologize, except um, a minister went to Namibia and apologized, but it wasn't an, a formal agreed upon apology from the whole German government. And they have refused to pay any kind of reparations to um, the remaining Herero and Nama people, the descendants of the of the victims. And so this is the second takeaway that I, I would hope people would have from the book, that the colonial genocide, in a real sense, made the Holocaust imaginable. The fact that Germany had done this once and gotten away with it, repressed it, in, in many ways enabled them um, in ideology and methodology to uh, to carry out the Holocaust. And I think maybe it will raise a question in the mind of readers. Um, you know, if history had been changed, if Germany had acknowledged this genocide early on, would that have changed the course of history? Uh, or now that it's being acknowledged, how will it change the course of history? Yeah, I, I think that this is a, a good way to wrap up your book because um I think it is important for those listening that this book is very timely um, and very important. And I, I would encourage all our listeners to go and get it, read it. It's um, it's actually not too long, so you, you <laughs> you'll get through it. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it's 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 definitely um, it, and it's also a very very interesting book. Um, a lot of interesting 
um, things that you probably haven't read about or, or thought about um, come up in it, and, and I would I can't highly recommend it enough. Um, before I let you go, though, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Before I let you go, I always like to ask uh, the authors um, now that they're done with this project and it's on the shelves and people are buying it and reading it. Um, what are you working on now? So um, I'm focusing in on one aspect of of this 1904 genocide, and that is is the topic of sexual violence. Um, it was a long time before Holocaust studies scholars acknowledged that German troops routinely raped women, even Jewish women. There was always sort of a piety in Holocaust studies that because of the Nuremberg laws that forbid sexual contact between, quote, Aryans, unquote, and people who were Jewish, um, that no Jewish women were raped. And, and we now know after um there's been um, admittance in the field of Holocaust studies to feminist approaches to the Holocaust that rape was widespread. It's um, a common occurrence in wars all over the world and through history. And so um, virtually nothing has been written about sexual violence that occurred between the Schutztruppe in um, their colony in Africa and the indigenous women who were there. But we know. Um, uh, from primary source documents that, uh, there were brothels set up with indigenous women. Um, there was widespread rape of indigenous women, um, who were often in unprotected situations or if they were in concentration camps. We know there were actually, um, buildings set up on the perimeter of these camps where, uh, women from who were prisoners in the camp in the concentration camps were forced to serve um, uh, the German men um, in uh, in these buildings. And um, so that's the, the focus of my work now. Um, and I have an article forthcoming on that in um, a new book that will be out next year called The Palgrave Hand- Handbook of Holocaust Literature and Culture, which is edited by Phyllis Lassner, and, and it will be published by Palgrave. Um, there's only one other article by an American uh, scholar on this topic uh, available and um, a sprinkling of articles in uh, in German, but I think it's a, a really important um, topic. Yeah, no, it, it sounds fascinating. And, and if there ever is a book that you do on it, um, I would love to have you back um, <laughs> to talk about it. So that sort of wraps up our show for today. Um, I want to thank Dr. Elizabeth Baer again for agreeing to come and speak with us. Um, again, the book is The Genocidal Gaze from German Southwest Africa to the Third Reich. Um, and I want to thank all our listeners uh, for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>